I'd like you to turn on your imagination for a moment, okay? Just, just turn it on. Just turn it on. Uh, you're, you're a Jew. Um, you, you were living in Jerusalem. Uh, one nation under God. Uh, that phrase might sound familiar to you. One nation under God. You get to set the rules. Um, you're in this holy nation, right? Uh, but, but wait a sec. Now, you're not in Jerusalem. You're in Babylon, and, and suddenly, you, you're, you're not the majority. You're a minority. Suddenly, you're living in an evil nation, and you're, you're struggling. In fact, you're thinking, why would I bring children into this world? What? You're, you're probably wondering, what does that text have to do with us this morning? I hope the correlation isn't lost on you. Because some of you are probably feeling like you're in Babylon. Some of you are hankering for the good old days when, as Christians, and I remember one of our own from Steinbeck, Jake Epp, was involved in bringing the Constitution home and a nation under God and all of this. And, um, and, and I think we're realizing that we are living in an increasingly secular context. I'm, 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 I'm going to tell you something you don't want to hear, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I realize that, in part, the Jews were taken into captivity, into exile, because of unfaithfulness. God doesn't do evil, but He's very good at using something that's evil for good purposes. And by the way, I know there are exceptions, but I really don't think the Jews actually figured out really well what our call to worship verse means. You're a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? He mediates between God and people and between people and God. A holy nation. We think a holy nation means don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, and don't swear. Right? Uh, that's what we were brought up thinking. And, and I've come to understand that holiness isn't only just purity in the reduced way that we think of it. Holiness actually means that you are set apart for a job, for a purpose. You and me. So, so let's not separate holy nation from kingdom of priests. And so to me, I'm thinking, you know, God's killing two birds with one stone. Yeah, they're unfaithful and I need to shake them up a bit, but they haven't been very good at reaching into the darkness I've called you to be salt and light, so I'm going to move you over here where the light is needed. I'm going to move you to Babylon for a while. And then Jeremiah writes this letter, and he says, guys, get focused. Yeah, that's very good, whoever's reading that. Um, and, and, and so my, my point this morning, and I almost feel like throwing my sermon in the garbage and having this conversation with you, but the point this morning is that, that maybe we're at the same place. Maybe we're at the same place. Maybe we are also at the place where we need to think about the opportunities and challenges that lie before us to be salt and light in our Babylon. Is that Okay. So, so you can moan and complain and cry about my rights to worship. And I'm going, wow, you've lost perspective. And some of you are angry at me right now. I, I don't care, actually. 
Because, because we have to focus on the main thing. We're called to be salt and light. So the title of the sermon this morning is Kingdom Clash. If we are citizens of another kingdom yet live within the context of a worldly kingdom, how are we to respond and how do we manage this tension? And first of all, I'd like to ask some important questions regarding our response, and then I'm going to come up with four responses. Number one, does our response to a secular society improve the capacity of the church and the individual believer to foster a distinct identity? One that is thoroughly and deeply Christian and at the same time consistent with scriptures to be the people of God? I think that's a valid question that we have to ask ourselves. Secondly, does our response to a secular society encourage and empower the church and individual believers to be present in the world in a way that reflects the call of Scripture for the church to be a means of grace to and in the world as a witness to Christ? Uh, A number of us got together to help uh, one of our own here um, move a play structure yesterday, and and, uh, thank you to all of you men that were there. Uh, uh, one of the gentlemen and myself uh, happened to hang back. We had a conversation, and, and uh, we were talking about how does the church actually minister to our world. And he shared his own experience um, in another community and wanting to give back to the community. And I, and I say that's thoroughly Christian in my mind. How do We're not meant to disengage. We're meant to engage and be there. Three, does our response foster the capacity of the church to be in but not of the culture and society in which we are situated? Does it help us to engage in mission, to be faithful witnesses to Christ, and to be present as salt and light? I think we have to have the right questions so that we can also then have the right answers. Yes, this has been an interesting year, to say the least. Lots of challenges and opportunities that we've never encountered before. I have to personally admit to you that this is my first pandemic. Yep. So I'm thoroughly unprepared. And my guess is that most of you are probably in the same boots. For many, it has only compounded an already growing sense and dread that we are losing our voice and our influence in a society. Something that we have called Christendom, and you've heard me use this word before, this idea of of having the majority and being able to then impose our, our beliefs and stuff on others. While most of us are likely not contemplating a move to another part of the world, like some of our forefathers did when the school act, the Manitoba School Act, came into effect, and I can't blame them because they were thinking about what had happened to them already in Russia, and they're going, here we go again. But most of us are not contemplating that. This last year certainly has served to polarize opinions and responses as to how we are to live in a secular context as believers. So here I want to share four responses. Four possible responses. And if I've forgotten one, you can text it to me and we'll look at it later. The first one, go along and get along. Go along to get along. Okay, That's the first response. Uh, This is probably the most common response amongst Christians, particularly in North America. It is to accept that we now live in a secular context and we need essentially to live a split or a divided 
way of life, which occupies two ways of being um, that are kept separate. So, for instance, you privatize religion. So today, you're in church, you're here, Sunday, this is your spiritual, your religious part. And then the rest of the week is secular. Okay? So we go along to get along. The church essentially functions as a place for religious sensibilities, a place to come away from the world, and a culture to be in a Christian zone. Here the church itself has little, if any, orientation to the world. Our religious identity or faith is private and what we would call siloed from life and work outside of the church or the community. We choose to lie low, blend in, and accept our Christian identity as having a marginal impact on how we live our lives and how we engage in our vocations in the world. So we think there's little to be gained by fighting secularism. <clears throat> In fact, some actually would see it as better than the, what they view as the alternative, religious fundamentalism or fanaticism. The question, of course, is whether this is consistent with the call of Christ to the church to be salt and light, an instrument of God's grace in the world. For those who believe that the church is called to be in the world, this approach raises serious questions. If we are to be in the world but not of the world, then this privatized silo approach is clearly inadequate. And if you haven't heard me say it and you're confused, I don't like this approach. I don't think it's biblical. Christians cannot avoid, nor should they want to, the call of Christ to be salt and light, to be witnesses to the reign of God in word and deed. We're not called to the easy way. Christians need to be fully Christian, even if that means there will be difficult times of conflict. On a positive note, just because we no longer have a privileged voice in our pluralist, secular context, that doesn't mean we have no voice. And by the way, when I, to use a good German word, am yen on, when I, am, when I take an aggressive adversarial stance to my government and my context, I only make myself anathema to them. In other words, I actually hinder my voice when I take an adversarial approach to everything. And you can read between the lines. Could it be that by privatizing our faith and practice, we actually live the bulk of our daily lives in a manner that is actually as secular as our agnostic or non-religious neighbors? Huh. Okay. So we're throwing response number one in the garbage. Response number two, what I call the monastic response. This response requires us to retreat from society and build a protective wall between it and our community of faith. Refusing to be of the world. And I don't want to throw stones. There were good intentions. But some conservative Mennonites that have moved on to colonies that's the approach. Isolate from the world. The world is evil. Let's get away. And maybe we could include the Amish and other groups. Isolation. Let's get away from it. Let's protect ourselves. And to me, it's interesting. Jesus said, it's not what enters a man that contaminates him, but what comes out of the heart. 
So I found that isolation actually doesn't work. Number one, you don't have a witness, and number two, actually the rot starts on the inside, not on the outside. It's not a solution. In fact, this might also reflect aspects of the Bible school movement, even though I've been a student at Bible college and a prof there. But when we privatize Christian schools and still try to be a part, intentionally creating spaces or venues that protect young people by shielding them from the city, are we not doing something similar? Is retreat an is retreat a legitimate response to the decline in our secular society? Does this approach of provide a sufficient level of engagement with the world so that the church is truly salt and light? Is retreat truly the only option? Retreat fails to genuinely and effectively engage the world. We simply do not have the option of abandoning the world to which we are called to be present as salt and light. And I don't think I have to remind us that God loves every human being. He wants to save every human being. So he doesn't actually want those of us that have embraced him as our Lord and Savior to isolate and not share that with others. The monastic approach is also inadequate for the more complex reason that while bemoaning the so-called decline of society, those who choose to withdraw have failed to see the way in which secularity opens up new possibilities for Christian identity and mission. The monastic approach essentially just gives up on society. This giving up blinds us to the new context or situation which in our case is secularism and post-Christendom, that calls for a renewed form of being the church in the world. Uh, toward the beginning of this year, when things started to unravel with the pandemic, I said that the pandemic has put the building and the program in the dumpster. <laughs> North American evangelicalism, for 100 years or so, has had the building and the program as the cornerstone of what it meant to be the church. And now both of those were effectively sitting in the dumpster. And I, I got to tell you something this morning. I was watching this YouTube video of an interview of a, a pastor in the Middle East. Uh, his face was uh, hidden. His voice was changed because he was risking his life by doing this interview. The church is growing like crazy in the Middle East. There are over a million Christians in Iran. You heard me. You think we have challenges? To be baptized or to baptize someone in Iran or in a Muslim country doesn't give you a court case. It means immediate execution. There is no court case needed. And the church is growing by leaps and bounds. Wow. Wow. And they're not complaining because we can't get together. They're getting together at homes. They're doing things. They're discipling as they can. They're living out their faith. Uh, the interesting thing that I caught from that conversation was uh, because he was asked about the difference between North American evangelicals and the situation. He said, well, it might be that North Americans have chosen Christ as Savior, but we've also chosen him as Lord. 
See the difference? In other words, obedience. That's all we're concerned about is obedience. We will die for what we believe in. Obedience. So I'm telling you this morning that we need to rediscover what it means to be the church in this new context. What might look like a challenge is also an opportunity. Babylon was probably quite a challenge, but it was also an opportunity. Number three, we're discarding the monastic approach. Okay, we're done with that one too. Number three, and this one's also fairly common, the culture wars response. Those who opt for this response believe that the country is at its best when Christian values and Christian leaders shape the culture. Therefore, we must fight to keep the nation Christian. Have you thought about uh, where this breaks down? What would you think if, if um, Muslims gained a majority in Canada and because they got the majority, they could impose Sharia law? Would you be good with that? Would you like that? I'm guessing most of you wouldn't like it. So, so then, then why do we get to impose Christian morals on pre-Christians? Isn't it always supposed to be an invitation? Don't we lead by example? Or, or do, we get to, do we get to violate free will and impose? I'm, I'm, I'm just asking the question. For this approach, this is war. And the battle lines are drawn over things like abortion rights, questions of human sexuality, etc., etc. And I'm not getting into any of those. This is the moral majority approach. Let's, let's, let's gain power and, and, and by virtue of that power, let's impose things. When we evaluate this approach, we have to ask the question, does it work? Does it work? And does unqualified support of conservative political candidates actually preserve the culture as a Christian culture? Or does something else get compromised? And again, you can read between the lines. I'm being careful. Does the culture wars approach reflect the best way for the church to engage both the limits and the potential of living and working in a secular society? Does an adversarial approach actually further the cause of Christ in our society? And I would say no. I had a pre-Christian neighbor who I saw him outside. I walked across the street. We greeted and stuff like that. And he's not a believer. And he said, what's with that church down south? And what's with... And he says, nobody's taking away my right and ability to pray. In fact, I pray before I go to sleep. This is an unbelieving neighbor that I had a conversation with. And he's, in other words, he's saying, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure I understand that particular approach. I don't think he's being won by that approach. If we are to have a hill we are willing to die on, for what issue or issues would that be? <clears throat> this response wants to turn the clock back. The assumption is that the nation was once Christian and we need to restore that religious identity. And yes, many Christians notice that there is a widening gap between our values and secular values, especially in matters of sexuality, and it makes us afraid. 
In fact, this, this view, this position, this response can slip, quickly slip into a sense of collective victimhood. The culture is out to get us. We have to withdraw into the purity of our enclave. The odd thing is that this siege mentality feels kind of good to people who grab onto it. It gives people a simple way to interpret the world. The noble us versus the sinful them. Us versus them. And sorry, I peeled out all of my big words, but I left one in. The result is often pathological dualism. You can look that up later. Pathological dualism, that's what we end up with. A mentality that divides the world between those who are unimpeachably good and those who are irredeemably bad. And then we become completely blind to any good or anything God might be doing in the world. Nothing is gained and much is lost when, we, when our approach is adversarial and when we are constantly choosing new battlegrounds to somehow keep a Christian privileged voice. It's a losing battle. And while fighting this losing battle, we miss out on the new opportunities that are being given to us for Christian witness and engagement. We live in a context that calls for a renewed vision of what it means to be the church. We need to recognize that secularity is not the end of the world. The culture wars approach does not work. Rather than leveraging power, we need to accept that this new secular reality also presents an opportunity for us to be an instrument for transform, transformative change. So we need to fashion a way of being present in and engaged with our society in a manner that is both faithful, faithful to the gospel but also transformative. I'll give you an example. I, it's a personal example, sorry, but I can't share yours. Um, before I moved away, I was a rescue operator on the fire department. And I remember after drills, half of the guys went to France Motor Inn and the other half went to Miller's Cafe for coffee. But we were one family, one brotherhood. I did not withdraw from that group because some chose to uh, spend time drinking. My wife and I were also on the Husky board uh, for some time. And, and that included a fundraiser occasionally that was called Bud, Spud, and Steak. And they were amazed when we went. They were uncomfortable almost. What are you doing here? And I had my Coke and my Spud and my steak. Why are we so terribly uncomfortable? Can we not be faithful and present at the same time? And this is a whole new question, but can we, do we really believe that Love is enough, that love is the way instead of heavy-handedness? Don't you, do, do you not believe that, that as we love each other and love other people that actually our influence and our voice will be stronger rather than legislating? So that leads me to the fourth response, the last one, unless you have others. The fourth response I call faithful presence. 
I believe that true leverage within a society is exerted from a place of being present, humbly and charitably, and participating in the institutions of our culture, not withdrawing. Yes, we are deeply and fully Christian, but within society rather than at war with society. We do not need to panic or bemoan our situation. Rather, we can intentionally leverage the openings and opportunities that are given to us precisely because we live in a secular age. The lack of Christian voices or presence and the fact that a society is increasingly secular does not imply that God is not present. He's here. He's working. If if God is present in Iran and there's a million Christians and the church is growing in Iran, then certainly he's also present here. He, he, his arm is not short. He's not limited to where he can be involved in our world. We do not divide into Christian and non-Christian, religious and secular, light and dark, on the assumption that everything outside of the immediate domain of the church is dark somehow demonic and an inherent threat to the gospel and to God. I think we need to accept secularity as the new dynamic to which the church is called. Rather than fighting or withdrawing or being resigned to it, we need to look at new ways and opportunities for Christian witness that emerge in our society. We also probably need practices as a church that help us to sustain our distinctive identity so that we don't become as secular as the society around us. And I think that our collective worship together and our service together is part of sustaining our faith and keeping us firmly there. We are called to redemptive engagement through faithful presence. We need a vision of what it means to be thoroughly Christian while accepting, if not affirming, the diversity of our culture and society in which we live and work. The ultimate vision of the church is not cultural transformation as such to make the world a better place. The church is to be countercultural in some form or another, living according to a different agenda with a distinct allegiance to a different ruler, Jesus. Rather than fighting secularity or viewing it as a threat, we can speak to how this soil is potentially good for the Christian faith. We're planting seeds in the soil. We can be free to stop bemoaning our fate or wringing our hands and wondering what went wrong. Instead, we, instead we consider the new reality to which God has called the church. We need to remember the words of Jeremiah when he spoke to the people of Judah that they were to seek the peace of the city to which God had sent them. In order to do this, they needed to see that they were there by divine appointment. And, and what I'm saying is that you and I need to see us as here by divine appointment. And yes, seeking the peace of our city means that we need to understand our context. That doesn't mean isolating or withdrawing. It means that we need to understand our context so that we can be meaningful. When we put that basketball hoop up on our parking lot, it was because we also understood that our community just to the north of us, many, many of them love basketball. We understood the context. 
Rather than assuming it is bad, when we think about secularism, we should view this new reality in the same way that any missionary would view a culture. Where are the points of connection between this culture and our Christian faith? Where in what ways does the gospel challenge the culture? In what ways is it countercultural? Jeremiah 29, I think, and probably most of the exile or post-exile letters, teaches us something about what it means to live in a context different than the one we would prefer. How might the experience of Judah during and after exile, called diaspora, contribute wisdom to the church in our 21st century in a post-Christian secular society? The consistent testimony of the prophets is that this is all part of the providential purposes of God, working through the ruling authorities, first the Babylonians and then the Persians. The situation was seen as providential. And as Jeremiah says, when he says that they are to seek the welfare of the city, he says, where I have sent you, 29 verse 7. It would make a substantial difference if we actually considered the possibility that our situation could be providential, even missional. What can we take from the witness of the prophets as they spoke into this experience of the people of Judah? The repeated theme is surely that the genius of their existence, i.e. thriving during the time of exile, is one of presence with a distinct identity. So the people are encouraged to be present and engaged, at the same time to remain other, to sustain their identity as the people of God. Yeah, it was a tragedy, as the book of Lamentations says, but it also opened them up to a new vision of what it meant to be the people of God. God had brought them to the mission field, and as we have sometimes said, today, with all of our immigration, God has brought the mission field to us. And we're okay with saying that as long as it doesn't upset our comfortable way of life. What I find so impressive about Esther and Daniel is their capacity to sustain this tension, this dual identity of living in the world while not of the world. And by the way, I have an Old Testament prof here this morning, Daniel is my hero in the Old Testament because there's no sign that he loses integrity but he goes through multiple government changes and doesn't lose his head and he's once again placed in, in high positions. They figured out how to live in a context that wasn't to their choosing. This is a great example of how to live as a minority presence and how believers can flourish with limited or no power. So to be a minority presence with limited power or influence is not bad or catastrophic in and of itself. The experience of exile can give us a way to rethink and reimagine what it means to be the people of God. Nothing is gained by being at war with our circumstances or overcome by our situation. I believe this morning that it is possible, quite possible, to be in but not of the social context and culture. Yes, you can view Judah's exile as a period of decline, a regrettable development, 
Or it might actually be a foretaste of what it truly means to be the church. The witness of the prophets is that they are not alone. And you and I this morning are not alone either. God is with us as he was with them. The glory of God was revealed to them specifically while in exile. And my prayer this morning is that you would also, as you meditate on God's word and as you pray, that you will catch a glimpse of how much God is here, is with you. As believers, we're residents in this land, but our loyalty belongs elsewhere. We gather on Sunday as a people who are deeply aware of the ways in which we live and work in a deeply fragmented world, a place that's sometimes dark and needs light. Our worship is not a denial of or an escape from the world, but rather a corporate encounter with God wherein we affirm that even in the darkness there can be light. Our worship, our worship, and I'm so glad that our vision statement has that first, worship God. Our worship is not a denial of or an escape from this world, but rather a corporate encounter with God in which we affirm that even in the darkness there is light. Our presence within society may well be marked by grief and difficulty, but this does not diminish the potential for redemptive engagement. And here's my opportunity to remind you, your job is your fob. Your job is your fob. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Could it be that the current social, cultural, political, and religious location of the church in the West is actually providential? If so, it means that rather than wringing our hands in despairing for the church and for our culture, we must instead ask what it might mean if this is of God, if this situation is providential. <clears throat> as believers, as God's kingdom of priests, we are to share his love and hope with the world. Please don't engage in fear-mongering. If you don't have hope, then who does? Of the four options this morning, my hope is that you will reject the first three and that you will embrace the opportunities and challenges of being a faithful presence. And as we do this together as a family of faith, we will be able to draw others to the light. That's our calling. I'm going to ask uh, Ethan and Andrew to come forward. Uh, let's see if there are some comments and questions. There are. There are, okay. Oh, boy. Oh boy. <laughs> um, yes. Well, just first comment. Thank you, Pastor Ernie, for your courage in presenting this message. Much appreciated for putting in words and putting together thoughts that many of us have probably been working through. Just a general, general comment. Um, 
So here's a more specific one. Is there a time when being present, <clears throat> participating in an event, negatively affects our witness? I.e., does our attendance at an event communicate our support for the event? 100%. Great, great question. And, and I know that I need to be, as a pastor, I need to be careful, right? Because um, you see me somewhere and, and you wonder about that. But, man, I, I, I look at the New Testament and I see that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. He didn't seem too terribly concerned. In fact, his reputation was trashed regularly by the Pharisees who thought that a holy person would never do that. So I, I guess I'm just, I'm just willing to engage. So, yes, when we went as a fire department for training to Winnipeg and during the lunch break, the guys wanted to have lunch at a pub and, and, and stuff. I was part of the group. I went along. But I was the designated driver and I had coke. So, so somebody could have seen me go in there. And then you just have to decide when you see me, you have to decide whether you're going to judge me for it or you're going to assume what I'm doing. Or, and if you have a concern whether you're going to value me enough as a brother to come and, and talk to me and say, what were you doing? Right? Uh, we're so good at assuming and, 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 and saying that other person, he's obviously fallen off the wagon. Right? So I, I think we've got to keep that intention. I, this is a horrible answer because it doesn't really give any help, but I think it's incredibly context-dependent because, like, I do think there are some places where Christians probably shouldn't be, shouldn't go, but then everything else, like, it depends where you are and who you associate with because, like, for Ernie, they see him go into a pub, and they, maybe they'd get concerned, but they see me go into a pub that's probably... You know, come see, come saw, as they say in French. Uh, there, there are lines. I, I read about a pastor who um, witnessed to uh, a, a lady who plies a trade that I won't mention, but I think you all know. And, and she wanted to meet with him, but she said she was only willing to meet with him if he came to her place of business. And, and, and I would say, personally, as a pastor, I would say, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll meet you in a neutral place at a coffee shop, but I won't go into that building, okay? Uh, in, in other words, there, there, yes, certainly there are restrictions to what, what you should open yourself up to. Yeah. I fear someone commenting that Paul's instructions uh, can be found in places like 1 Corinthians 4.11, which says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst... We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. The idea that, that it's not a call to hold power. And, and I think what, what I'm suggesting is that we, we calibrate our approach a little bit. I, I wonder if our 90% our of our effort has been at making sure that we behave holy, we clean up, and, and I'm wondering if we shouldn't just, yeah, still be concerned about being holy, but maybe we should turn our focus at, at how do we reach the lost. And sometimes that's messy. Sometimes that's messy. And, and, and be willing to risk and engage in the world even though that can be messy 
because, uh, again, if we spend all of our time just trying to make sure that we're just squeaky clean, but we don't affect the world, I don't know that we're being a kingdom of priests the way scriptures ask us to be. This one's a tougher one again. So does the approach of getting permission from Hanover schools to have religious teaching in schools fit in the faithful presence or the monastic approach? Or should we just resign our approach to teaching our own children at home or in church? Maybe there's an opportunity to revive kids clubs at church or reach out to the children around our church or have a daycare. Great question. Drum roll. Go ahead. <laughs> and you want me to answer this one? <laughs> I think it's, it's a tough question. Like, I think it depends where you're coming from in your desire to have that stuff available at schools, right? Like, I think if you're trying to, if you're trying to hold on to some of the older ways, as Ernst was talking about in the service, then maybe you're wasting energy on a, it's, it's kind of like a pushing a rock up a hill, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's not useful, right? And that, that's a great question. Um, I, I think we, we take the opportunities we're given, but then we don't fight and scream and, and, and make accusations when, when those are lost. The other question that I would ask is, are you abdicating your responsibility as a parent to train your child in matters of faith in the home? And you're expecting that those few minutes in school will do it for you. I, 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 that's probably not your purpose, but yeah, it, that's a good question. And, and that's something that we should, we should talk about, right? Um, quoting uh, Tim Getter at convention a few years ago, it's not so much about a better society, but about reflecting the character of God in our lives and the already, but not yet, of the kingdom of God here in the midst of this side of eternity. Perfect, well said. Um, yeah, follow up to the, the negative side of... Uh, of uh, presence somewhere that you answered before. So how do we interact with our Christian brothers and sisters who passionately protect Christendom? Um, graciously, humbly. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think unity is really important in the family of faith. That doesn't mean unanimity. That doesn't mean that we can't have different opinions. But we don't, we don't attack and destroy either. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Steinbeck Air, Air and Area Ministerial Association, uh, we uh, all signed off, and others, ministers in the community that don't regularly come, signed off on a letter supporting the province's efforts early on, a year ago or so. Mm. Um, but we did not sign a letter that was forwarded by another church asking us to sign off on a letter criticizing the church in Winnipeg for having um, outdoor services against the government. In other words, we, we're not called to criticize or call out. And you'll notice that none of the churches here locally have either called out that church that has had so much trouble with the government. It's, it's not our position to attack others that are part of the family, mm -hmm. right? So we need to be gracious. I think we need to be gracious. 
and I think, and this is just me personally, but um, if you look at, I think you could make the case, make the argument that the primary misunderstanding between Christ and his disciples was that they wanted him to have political power, and that's not what he was there for. Like, secular influence. Um, and what are we called to if not to imitate Christ? Like, that's, <laughs> that's the center of the call, I think. And the way he, it's not the same because the, he's, their, he's their, you know, their rabbi. But the loving in, instruction, like not denying, not, at, not you know, um, yielding to their demands and not uh, cruelly berating them either. It's somewhere in the middle. It's lovingly, loving truth. <laughs> yeah. You're right, and I think the... Um that agenda, that problem has propagated itself through history. Um, and I point to the persecuted church and say that it, to some degree they've figured it out mm. because they don't espouse to that. Okay, right. thank you. Uh, I think we're going to stop. We want to sing a bit more. I'll let you guys go down and I'll pray as the praise band comes up. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of the exiles and what it can speak uh, to us today. I pray that you would uh, guide us by your Holy Spirit so that we could figure out and understand what you are calling us to in our present context. Help us to uh, practice faithful presence uh, where you have placed us. And then we ask that you would also make that fruitful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.